Today what I wanted to do was I wanted to start like a new recommended reading series. Um, obviously thinking about the fact that this is supposed to be all about people who have either just started the course or to be honest it's supposed to be for people who are interested in applying. So I thought if we did like a recommended reading series we could look at a few different articles that you could consider reading before you apply. But before we look at the specific article that I've picked for today, um, I know what the people really want. And what people really want is uh, an update on the cat and the mud and the dumbbells too. So the situation with the cat is pretty straightforward. Um, there were a couple of times that I thought he'd made a break for it and that I was never going to see him again. But then it turned out that he was just sitting upstairs um, cuddled up in bed. What happens is if I'm preparing dinner, I like to leave the door open for him so we can uh, wander through the garden. And he kind of ninjas his way back into the house sometimes past me. But then I look out into the garden and just assume that he's, you know, made a break for it forever. Uh, in contravention to the lockdown rules, but uh, he's a cat, so that's the kind of thing he's likely to do. Okay, dumbbell news. That's what everybody wants, muddy dumbbells. Well, they're no longer muddy because I snuck them into the living room and uh, used some fancy wipes to clean them. And let me tell you, folks, it was extremely satisfying. They've come up with a lovely kind of shine. And uh, the one thing better than actually using your dumbbells to do exercise is cleaning them and then setting them back down again and then wandering off. So that's that. But listen, that's not even the big news, because today is the 7th of... November and it's actually it's 4.36 and just seven minutes ago I learned that the United States of America has a new president. The Associated Press has announced that um, Joe Biden has won Pennsylvania. I was following it on The Guardian so they have him now at 284 electoral votes. Whatever happens with Arizona he's now safe even with the Wisconsin and uh, Georgia recounts which are likely. So that's exciting and yeah I guess, though, it's interesting because that's not the most significant event in my life. Uh, for me, what I've been doing is cleaning up the fridge because I was back in school yesterday and I, in the morning, I was trying to get myself really well prepared. So I'd like ironed my shirt and I had got all my badges and all that stuff so that I could scan in and this and that and the other thing. And I had my PPE ready and I'd filled out my risk assessments and I was ready to rock and roll. And I got up in the morning and I made myself a lovely black coffee. That's how I like, that's how I take my coffee and put it in like a takeaway cup. And that was brilliant. So I made that and set it down, grabbed the car keys. And what did I do? I just wandered straight out to the car and, uh, and went off. So 
nearly at school, I realized, hang on, I haven't had my caffeinated beverage of the day. So I stopped at, uh, at an Asda supermarket and went in um, and all the only coffees they had were like vanilla latte, like cold vanilla lattes or just regular lattes or whatever. And I was like, no, I just want like a black coffee, even a cold one's fine. But I couldn't get one. So I thought I'll slum it and I'll have a Red Bull. But the Red Bull, it was in the fridge, the tin of Diet Red Bull, because I didn't want sugar, was in the fridge on the top shelf, but like tucked away at the back. Um, and I'm quite short, so I literally couldn't reach it. And I thought, well, I could climb up on the like the bottom shelf and just humiliate myself. But between us, I've actually done that once before. And what happens is everything just topples on top of you. So I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. What I'll do is... I will go to the soft drink section and I'll buy like a multi-pack of, you know, the energy drinks. Went down there, saw the Red Bull. It was like two quid or two fifty or whatever it was. Suddenly, boom, Asda brand, like Red Mule or whatever it's called, you know, like the, the ripoff version, Orange Mule. Um, eight pack of that, way cheaper. So I bought eight of those. Brilliant. I had two of them, took the other six home and put them into my own fridge. That's when I noticed the black coffee that I'd left that morning was also sitting out. So I thought, right, I'll put the black coffee in the fridge. I'll drink that tomorrow. I know that's embarrassing, but that's the kind of guy you're dealing with here. And then I put the other six tins of that in the fridge as well. No problem at all. Later on that night, I was chopping up some pineapple and rearranging stuff in the fridge. Didn't think anything of it. Got up this morning, opened the fridge, and what did I find? I knocked over the black coffee and spilt it all over the bloody fridge. So I've been cleaning that and re-cleaning that um, to make sure that the, the fridge is okay. So as important as having a brand new president of the United States is, I think you can understand that in my life, there have been more significant events. So that's what's been going on. Now, let's get stuck into what we're actually going to do here. So as I said, we're going we're gonna to do this recommended reading series. Uh, and the name of the series is going to be What Does an EP Do? And this is going to be part one where I want to talk about casework. So the paper that I've picked is by Boyle and Lachlan. It was published in 2009 in Educational Psychology in Practice. And in your interview, you're going to want to say EPIP. It was published in EPIP because it'll make you sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, volume 25, issue one um, in March 2009. <laughs> pages 71 to 84 in case you're really lost and the name of the article is applied psychology and the case for individual casework some reflections on the role of the educational psychologist so that's applied psychology and the case for individual casework some reflections on the role of the educational psychologist and that's by Boyle and Lachlan 2009 so essentially what I want to do is give you a load of information I wish I'd known before applying about what the life of an educational psychologist is actually like because I know that EPs can be quite elusive and kind of mysterious and um, I was trying to think of an analogy to something elusive and mysterious so I was looking at like uh, animals that are quite elusive and then I just got, <laughs> I got completely wrapped up in that I lost about a half an hour to 40 minutes just reading about these animals I'd never heard of like the ard wolf have you ever heard of an ard wolf uh, it's a bit like an aardvark but essentially it's a small mammal and it looks like a striped hyena, um, and it's found in Eastern and Southern Africa, and its name means earth wolf. So obviously the ard part of that means earth, which I didn't know, so I learned something new. 
there. And yeah, it eats mostly termites, much like an aardvark does. So I guess the point I'm making is that EPs are just like aardwolves. I've lost track of what the hell I'm talking about. So yeah, so I want to reveal a little bit about what an EP actually does or is expected to do day to day and then maybe get into a little bit of a discussion around some of those issues um, because you don't want to just be all surface um, if you're going to apply or have an interview or whatever. You're going to want to have a little bit of depth as well, which is where the paper comes in. So I think what we'll do is we will take a little bit of a break and then once we start back again, I'll explain to you roughly what this paper is about and some of the interesting things about it. Okay, I'm going to start us off with a simple question. If you are applying to do this job, you're probably going to be asked, why are you applying to be an educational psychologist? Why would you like to be an educational psychologist? And I'm guessing the reason you would probably give is something along the lines of, I wanted to use psychology to help vulnerable children or vulnerable people, or I wanted to improve children's lives, or I wanted to apply psychology in a practical way, or I wanted to combine my love and passion for psychology with my interest in helping young people, or some such combination of those, which is all very admirable. I think what people will appreciate even more if you've done some thinking and reflecting on that is, what is the reality of the EP role actually like? And I'll be completely honest, as I've said before, I wasn't 100% sure on this when I first applied. So I'm just gonna talk you through roughly what being an educational psychologist is actually like. So it goes a bit like this. If you work for the local authority, then you're likely to be given a group or like a patch it's sometimes called of schools. And this tends to be like a pick and mix of primary, secondary, and special schools. In addition to that, you'll probably be given some um, early years work and probably some post-16 work uh, in colleges and things as well. Um, and I'll maybe explain at a different time precisely why you work with those different cohorts. But essentially, in all likelihood, that's what you're going to be um, given, especially in your second or third year of training. Now, you'll then be given an amount of time or a number of sessions or however your particular local authority thinks of it for each of those schools. And that amount of time is going to be calculated using some kind of algorithm. So there'll be a variety of variables fed into that algorithm, stuff like uh, the number of children at the school, uh, demographics in the area, the number of children on free school meals, uh, uh, how many looked after children there are, how many children are on the SEN register, all these kinds of things will determine the number of sessions or the number of hours or however you want to think of it that that school will get. And then your job at the beginning of each of the terms, really, but say at the beginning of the academic year, is to get together with the decision makers at the school. That'll involve the Senko, definitely. 
and might involve a few others depending on the school. So the head might be there or um, there might be other people from multi-agency teams, um, which I'm not going to get into now because it gets a bit complicated. But just say for argument's sake, it'll be you and the Senko and say that's just it. Uh, now, I know that in some local authorities, it would actually be the EP and several Senkos and they meet in like a group and kind of negotiate the time. Um, I have come across that, but where I am at the minute, that's not the way it works. So you'll get together and have what's called a planning and consultation meeting with the Senko. And the point of this meeting is to get together and have them bring the cases or the children that they think it would be a good idea for you to um, work with. And you'll go through each of those cases and think about what some of those next steps might look like or some of the things that you might be able to offer. But already it's getting a little bit educational psychology and it's getting a little bit vague when I'm saying things like the next steps. So let, let's get specific. What do I mean by next steps? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to now introduce the article that I was talking about. So let's think about what does an EP actually do? Like what is their role? So according to the Review of the Provision of Educational Psychology Services in Scotland, which is also known as the Curry Report, which was published in 2002, there are five core functions of an EP. Okay, so let's go through the five core functions. The Curry Report identifies assessment, intervention, consultation, training, and research. Now, until you've experienced some of those, they probably still sound a little bit vague. When I was in year one, I tried to put this together in a simple way for me to understand. Uh, a little mnemonic, which just helped me sort of keep it in mind, especially when I was doing essays and things, and they asked about what's the impact on the EP rule, I would kind of run through this checklist. So I thought of EPs as Arctic researchers, and Arctic stood for assessment, reflection, consultation, training, intervention, and creative work, and then researchers was research. Uh, and to be honest, creative work's a placeholder so that the word Arctic fits there. So if you can think of a better mnemonic, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. But let's go through those. So those core functions again were assessment, reflection, consultation, training, intervention, creative work or casework maybe, and then research. Now, those are the core functions that I want to talk about over the next few episodes of this. So I'm going to be looking at casework today and then I'll maybe look at some of the others in subsequent episodes, starting first with assessment, then moving on to intervention, and then on to consultation, and then we'll do the others. So that's all very well and good. Now, it is a little bit more complicated because you might think, do you just go in and assess a child and then come up with interventions for them? Um, do you just consult with staff? Do you just offer training to the staff and so on? Well, the way that Boyle and Lachlan break this down is that there are at least three levels which you might work at. So you might work at the level of the individual child or the family, for example, but you might work at the whole school level and you might even work at the local authority level as well. So 
not only are there core functions, but there are different levels at which you will actually carry those functions out. Another way to think about those levels is to get a little bit psychological about it. And one psychological theory that will definitely be brought up to you during your training is Bromfin Brenner's ecological systems theory, which basically breaks down the levels around a child. Uh, so you have the child themselves, and then if you can imagine sort of a set of concentric circles with the smallest circle around the child being the microsystem, which is their immediate environment, and then the circle slightly larger around that is the mesosystem, which is all of the connections around that. Then you would have the exosystem, which is the next circle, and that's the indirect environment. Then you would have the macro system, which is the social and cultural values. And also sometimes you'll see the chrono system being included as well, which is, of course, um, changes over time. So I would recommend making yourself aware of that as a psychological breakdown of the levels. So you've now got the functions and you've got the levels at which you would carry those functions out. And you've got a psychologist and a psychological theory to name when you're thinking about that. So hopefully you're with me so far. We've got those functions and we've got the levels at which you carry them out. So if we think about assessment, you might carry out an assessment of a child, but you might also carry out an assessment of a situation, whether that's uh, in a school or a classroom or whatever. It doesn't matter. It, it, it's not important. What, what's important is that that assessment function can be carried out at those different levels. Think about intervention. Uh, your intervention might be aimed at supporting one child, or you might suggest interventions or recommendations for a, a small group of children, or aimed at um, the child's family instead, or at the classroom level, or whatever. So I think hopefully you're starting to see what I mean. Sometimes it's the ability to work out what level you're supposed to be working, which takes some professional judgment and a bit of practice and so on. Um, but again, that comes with time and experience, I find. Thinking again about intervention, you might find yourself trying to shape and persuade um, some growth and change among the adults, say, in a school. And that's probably where those consultation skills would come in. And that's definitely something that we'll talk about in a subsequent episode. So that's all very well and good. You've got those core functions and you've got the different levels that they'd be carried out. But you're probably also going to want some kind of organizing principle in terms of making sense of the cases that are brought to you. So Farrell et al. 2006, in their paper, they identify the concerns around children that we're likely to face. And they highlight um, that it's concerns about children's cognitive, linguistic, sensory, physical, and or social and emotional development that we'd be um, concerning ourselves with. And that's a paper from 2006. Now, fortunately for us, those different areas of concern that Farrell et al. identified are actually broken down into four areas of need within what's called the Code of Practice for Special Educational Needs. So it's essentially what is expected of you in a statutory sense. It's, it's what the UK government indicates is supposed to happen for these children who have special educational needs, okay? Because those are the children that you're gonna be working with. And those needs that they have are broken down into four broad areas of need. And they're outlined in the code of practice, but I, I will just summarize them for you now. 
So one broad area of need is communication and interaction. And that's where children and young people have speech, language and communication difficulties, which make it difficult for them to make sense of language or to understand how to communicate effectively and appropriately with others. So there might be an issue with their receptive language, um, and their which is essentially their understanding of language directed toward them. There might be issues with their expressive language, so that's difficulties expressing themselves or using language to, to make their feelings and understanding of the world known. And then lastly, you might look at, uh, you might consider pragmatic language as well, which is sort of the ephemera, the like, you know, humor, irony, uh, body language, gestures, and so on and so forth. All, all those little things that make up social interaction, which aren't directly based in spoken language would be your pragmatic language. So that's sort of that communication side of it, but also there's more to interactions than that. So within the communication and interaction area of need, children with autistic spectrum conditions would be included there because they so often have difficulties with their social interactions. And then because of that, you'll often find some of their uh, sensory needs in terms of um, maybe needing ear defenders because there's too much ambient noise, maybe issues they have around being sensitive to textures, maybe uh, what it's like for them to wear clothes um, and needing to wear tighter clothes or looser clothes, um, issues maybe around eating and uh, colour of food, all, all sorts of things that would be folded into um, autistic spectrum conditions would there, therefore come under that communication and interaction area of need, even though later we'll see that there is actually an area of need called physical and sensory. When it comes to sensory needs that you would link to um, autism, you would actually consider it part of this area of need. So that's that's one area of need. The second area of need that I'm going to talk about is cognition and learning. So this is where children and young people maybe learn at a slower pace than others their age, for whatever reason. Um, they might have difficulty understanding parts of the curriculum, or they might have difficulties with organization and memory skills. Uh, they might have specific difficulty affecting one particular part of their learning, such as in literacy or numeracy. Um, so obviously there are a variety of ways that you might assess that, and that tends to be where cognitive assessments come in. Uh, if you've heard of the BASS or the WIAT or the WISC, these are the kinds of assessments that you would probably do to identify are there needs in relation to cognition and learning. Um, obviously the term learning difficulties covers a wide range of needs and that might also include moderate learning difficulties, uh, severe learning difficulties, and profound and multiple difficulties. They're all needs that you are likely to encounter um, in a variety of different provisions, whether that be specialist or otherwise. So that would be your cognition and learning and I, I suppose I should mention now that We've talked a little bit about how you might assess for those kinds of needs. Later on uh, in another episode, we'll talk about how you might assess for those communication and interaction needs as well, whether that be simply having conversations and learning from the adults who've noticed things, or whether it's you actually doing the assessment yourself. Let's talk about a third area of need then. So you've got social, emotional and mental health needs. So this would be children and young people who experience a wide range of social and emotional difficulties. And they might present themselves in a variety of ways. For example, they might have difficulty 
managing their relationships with other people. They might be withdrawn, uh, very anxious. They behave in ways that hinder their and other people's learning or have an impact on their health and well-being. It's it's quite a broad area. So perhaps uh, difficulty with attention deficit disorder or ADHD, attachment would be linked there because we've already mentioned relationships. And also, you know, those emotional and mental health areas. So we're talking about anxiety. We're talking about depression, um, maybe self-harm, eating disorders, things like that. So as you're having that planning and consultation meeting, the likelihood is that the the Senko is going to be very au fait with these areas of need and stuff as well. So you're going to be having a conversation around these areas. Uh, and if not, as they explain to you what the situation is, how those needs are manifesting, you'll start to then categorize and thinking, ah, right, okay, well, that falls within this area, that falls within that area. And with experience, you'll already start to be thinking about the interventions and the things that you've learned about in the past that help in those particular areas. Speaking about now this fourth area of need, and in my personal experience, this doesn't um, come up as often, but this is sensory and or physical needs. And this is where children and young people have visual and or hearing impairments. So I did work with an early years case uh, recently. Um, the little boy had a visual impairment and that was really, um, really helpful for me because it was just, it was brand new and it was something really different. Uh, so that's another area of need that you might encounter. So let's just sum up and then we'll take a little bit of a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk a bit more about casework. So, so far we've talked about what the, the core functions of the EP are and the different levels that they'd be expected to work at. We've talked about what the beginning of a term is going to look like in terms of starting to plan out what your work's going to actually be. And we've also talked about how you might categorize the needs of the children that have been brought to you. The next part of this episode is going to focus on your decision about which level you're going to operate at because that is an area of some debate among educational psychologists at the moment. Some EPs like to really focus on that systemic level, that sort of outer layer of Bromfenbrenner's um, ecological systems theory, those outer circles, and others are sort of happy enough to work, if not directly with the child, but at least working on their immediate environment and trying to affect change there. So I'll maybe come up with a, a sort of vague case study and we'll talk about those different ways that we can approach that after the break. think about um, a sort of random vague referral. So say there's a kid who's they're 14 and the school tell you in the either in that planning consultation meeting or maybe through a referral document that you get later in the term that this child is being disrespectful to several teachers and they've been getting into a lot of trouble and so on and so forth. Uh, the school want to know what's at the root of this and what they might do about it. Uh, they might even suggest doing a cognitive assessment. So their working hypothesis, their theory here is that that child has learning needs 
and therefore their behavior is communicating that they have those needs and therefore they don't want to engage with their learning. So that's kind of their theory around that, isn't it? So it might be that they suggest a, a cognitive assessment of some kind, like a psychometric assessment which is, you know, one of those official ones with numbers and a nice little booklet and, you know, everything's all neat and tidy and done with a pencil. Um, and that, that's what they think. So in a sense, it's up to you what you're going to do next here. You could either dispute that from the outset based on other information you have and say, mm, it doesn't really sound like that's what's going on. Or you could maybe go along with their hypothesis and test it out. So... Say you did that, you agree to do the test and you do a cognitive assessment um, of a variety, using a variety of subtests to find out what their working memory is like, what their expressed vocabulary is like, and a whole, a whole host of other things. I'm not going to go through them because it's not the assessment episode. And across the board, it's all average scores. So you can essentially at this point pretty much rule out that there's a, a learning need there that's resulting in the behaviours that the school are finding tricky. So once that's done, you're gonna carry out a number of other forms of assessment that we'll maybe talk about next time. And they're directed at other areas of the code of practice. And you learn that in the young person's view, what's going on is that the teacher expects respect without having earned it. And in the young person's view, respect has to be earned. So they therefore call out injustices and lack of fairness and um, the teacher not showing themselves or other students respect. Uh, yes, so they'll call that out. And this results in uh, bickering and little challenges, which often then escalate, escalate, that often escalate. And eventually teachers discipline the, this child using the behavior management policy. And this is resulting in detentions and suspensions, you know, fixed term exclusion, that kind of thing. So, what I'd like to do now, with that situation in mind, is return to the original question. You want to be an EP to make children's lives better. So what are you going to do next? Well, this is where it comes down to the level that you want to work at. So I'm going to return to Boyle and Lachlan for a second and steal some of the arguments that they outline for and against working on an individual level or doing what would be called individual casework. So the argument against working on an individual level or doing that individual casework would be that many educational psychologists argue that working at the level of organizations, working at the level of policy, uh, whether that be the behavior management policy of the school, is the best, most effective, most efficient way to work because you're working through others to affect that change, which will still be seen at the individual level. So you're trying to make those changes on those outer circles of Bronfen Brenner's diagram or theory. And that's then supposed to kind of trickle inwards or ripple inwards toward the child and makes the change happen at an individual level. So in this particular case that I've outlined, we might want to work with school staff and see if we can change the way staff generally interact with students. Maybe we can foster a way whereby students can buy into their authority or better yet we might drop the idea of authority and try and come up with a different behavior management policy whereby it's more relational and it's about mutual respect and that's the goal and maybe when things go awry the policy is actually to have a kind of restorative practice 
where there is an opportunity for mending and healing and growth and so on and so forth. And you can literally try and affect that change from the top and have it sort of trickle down then through the school. So that would be the way to kind of work in a, in a systemic way. Again, there's nothing hard or fast about this. I'm just being vague for the purposes of illustration. Now, the argument in favour of working individually would be that the young person could have more intensive work done with them specifically in an effort to change their subjective view of school and staff and understand things from the school's point of view, maybe try and have them understand that it's a really difficult task for a school to administer a one-size-fits-all approach to hundreds of pupils and dozens of teachers, all of whom are bringing different philosophies and different sets of values to the table. So you just need that blanket, consistent approach. And what you want to do is kind of try and mold the child to fit that approach that already exists. So just for sake of argument, those are the two ways that we might approach this. We might approach it by aiming for a whole school approach and we tackle it that way, or we try and change things at the level of the individual child. So getting back to Boyle and Lockin's paper, they would argue that this dichotomy that I've set up there is actually an unnecessary one. That setting those two things up in opposition isn't necessary to do. They would suggest instead that casework is actually at its best when it's carried out in full awareness of the social context of the work. So while you might work on an individual level, you're also conscious of those other concentric circles around the child at the same time. That is, you might actually do that individual work with a view to bringing it to the systems level. In fact, research that Boyle and Lachlan carried out suggested that schools already anticipate this. So you might do a little bit of work with that young person, find out what their view is, and then, armed with that, bring that to the Senko, bring it to the senior leadership team, and say, listen, this is what's happening for this young person. Here's what the policy in the school is. Is there wiggle room? Is there some gray area? Is there some fuzziness that we can work with in order to make that change happen, in order to affect some kind of change? And I find that one effective way to do that is to notice patterns. So if I notice that several referrals seem to elicit the same kinds of issues, then that suggests to me that there's definitely a responsibility on the school side and there's a potential for change there. Better yet, the argument that you make to the school is so much more compelling because you can say, well, listen, I've worked with these five children and this same thing keeps coming up. And I'm wondering, is there room for maneuver here in terms of what you guys are doing in that kind of way? I'm hoping this is making some kind of sense. I really am. So I want to talk about one more thing before I get into my own personal reflection about something that's been going on for me. And that's about something that's bothered me in the past about the way that I've heard fellow trainees talk about teachers and issues I've had with the way teachers talk about EPs. So I have I have encountered trainees getting annoyed with teachers because like they won't do their job or they won't just follow the advice that they're being given. They won't 
understand that the EP or the training EP knows better, that they know what's best in that given situation. It's almost as though the the teachers are letting their own expectations of the EP's role get in the way, or they're perhaps letting their own values or their own ideas about what causes certain behaviours to get in the way of the EP's advice. And so that's a cause of frustration for the EP's. Similarly, I've heard teachers complain because EPs don't just give out a load of advice. They don't just come in and behave like an expert who knows all the answers and just gives those answers. Instead, it feels like the EPs are just describing the problem back again, which is very frustrating because from the teacher's point of view, the school know why they made the referral. They, they already know what they think the problem is. So why is the EP just describing the problem again or describing the problem in a different way? And I think think if you're if you're lucky enough to get onto the course do keep an eye out for that that sort of clash of values almost or a clash of theories about what's going on because i think i think you'll definitely encounter it many times so my concern there is that this kind of impasse isn't doing any work for anyone if we once again return to this idea of why you want to be an ep if you want to make things better for children that's great because so do i that's what my my real goal is. Making things better for vulnerable people is the key. So I'm not going to be there if things are already brilliant. So there's no point getting frustrated that things aren't already taking over perfectly. There's no way that that's ever going to be the case. When I show up, there's going to be an issue. And that issue could well be with the teachers or the adults, parents, for example, their view their theory about what's going on. I think it's understandable to get frustrated with that, but I don't think it's going to do any work for you. I just, I don't think that an EP's work can be a matter of just getting pissed off because the situation isn't the way we wish it was. It doesn't make any sense to do that. We can only make things better by first acknowledging the reality of the situation we're actually in. So oftentimes in terms of, we were talking before about assessment, rather than thinking about assessment sometimes as assessment of a child's needs or whatever, I think sometimes assessment actually means a frank and honest appraisal of what's really going on. That's the reality that we're working with. That's the reality we want to improve. And there's no point getting emotional about it. There's no point getting upset about it. And that definitely applies to casework. So the choice about whether or not individual casework is the correct way to proceed can't be made solely by reflecting on whether or not the child needs to change or whether or not the adults need to change. I, I don't think that that's enough to concern yourself with. I think you also need to be thinking about, first of all, there's always going to be scope for the adults to change and you're always going to be sympathetic to the child because I think that's natural for EPs. Now, I know sometimes there'll be be kids that really wind you up and you sort of really feel for the adults or whatever, but I think your default position is going to be these poor kids and why can't these grown-ups who are professionals change their ways? I think that's probably the default position for EPs. But I think, to be honest, to truly make a difference, it's important for us to try and understand the expectations of the adults and meet them there. You've got to go and meet the adults where they are sympathetically. If, if, if you're certain that what you think is the right thing is the right thing, then you need to go and you need to inspire people to come with you, not force them. You simply can't do it. So if we go back to our case that I mentioned, I think we need to make time to bring what we find to the appropriate adults and uh, 
So yeah, so going back to our case, I think what I would do in that situation is get as much information as I can from that child, bring it back to the adults and then use the skills we have to inspire the adults to change or better yet, make the situation so clear and lay it out for them so plainly that they're almost arriving at the idea that they need to change or they're almost coming up with ideas about what might work next and they're getting sort of excited and creative around that. Like you're almost providing a space for them to to get energized around this. And I think if you do that, that's, that's what's going to really affect change. You want to get to the point where you're persuading them that what they're doing was actually their own idea. And another thing I should add, and this is kind of in the Boylan Lachman paper, but you're, you're never working with one case on its own. You're working in a situation whereby you're continually doing work and you're continually fostering relationships. So especially in those first few cases, I think you need to really think about how you can meet the client's expectations. If a school expect individual casework to be part and parcel of, of what you offer, then I think you need to do a good chunk of that and then surpass those expectations rather than refusing to meet them at all by, by saying, that's not the way that I work. I only work on a consultation basis. I only speak to the adults or that kind of a thing because I think that relationships are going to break down. And if you're not in there getting your hands dirty, actually doing the work, then nothing's going to change. So I guess that's that's my summary of that. So just if we can sum up before that, I move on to my actual reflection around casework that's that's been on my mind recently. Um, we've talked about the role of the EP in terms of the core functions. We've talked about the different levels that an EP might work at. And we've talked about the different areas of need. We've then moved on to talking about a specific case that we might encounter and how a decision needs to be made there around what level to operate at when it comes to casework and how you might need to find some kind of compromise or be a little bit more creative about the way you approach it rather than deciding that you only work with the child or that you only work with the adults. The purpose of all of that is to give you an idea of the kinds of conversations that you're going to want to have with tutors or those who are interviewing with you, sorry, those who are interviewing you or with your colleagues especially in those first year, in that first year or two of training. This is the level you want to be thinking at in terms of getting on with the course. So hopefully that's been helpful. I would certainly recommend reading that uh, Boylan Lachman paper, which I've highlighted a couple of times. Uh, and after this, I'm going to talk about a reflection I've had about casework and how a school have continue to have me working on that individual level and how they've done that and whether or not I am uncomfortable or not with that way of working. So I'll take another break and I will talk about that with you in just a moment. So I've been thinking recently about uh, the sirens of Greek mythology. Now, the sirens were dangerous creatures who lured nearby sailors with enchanting music and singing. And um, they sort of lured them closer and closer until the ships were wrecked on the rocky coasts of the islands that the sirens were on. So they're, so <laughs> so they're like sort of the opposite of a lighthouse. 
And I think the the most famous story of the sirens is in um, Homer's Odyssey, where the hero Odysseus is curious um, about what they sing. So he <laughs> so he has his the rest of his crew fill their ears with beeswax so they can't hear the sirens sing, and then tie him to the mast of the ship. Uh, and then they sort of get close enough so that he's able to hear them sing. And then obviously he then says, oh my God, this is amazing. Untie me, untie me. They refuse and actually bind him tighter. And then eventually they get away. And in some versions of the story, the sirens are fated to die if someone hears their song but isn't destroyed or like, you know, crashed against the rocks by them, which is quite interesting. So what the hell am I talking about? Why is this on my mind? Well... I was doing, so this is the what, the, I was doing some work in a school recently and one of the members of staff was very flattering to me about my ability to work with certain young people who are very difficult in the view of the school, in the view of this member of staff, I should say, and to elicit their views, to, to help them calm and reflect and just generally to interact with them in a kind of meaningful way. And staff at the school don't seem to be able to do that. So essentially what they want me to do is to continue, especially with one or two of these kids, is to almost adopt a kind of counselling role, which isn't quite what the educational psychologist role really is. So that that was beginning to make me feel a little bit uncomfortable and I wondered about the sweet words that I was being told and whether or not I was perhaps being manipulated to carry out a version of the job that I wasn't comfortable with or that even if I was comfortable with giving it a go whether or not I was actually undermining myself or making a fool of myself or whatever because you have to remember while I'm still training there's that potential that you're going to, you, there's that self-doubt that creeps in because you're always thinking, am I doing this properly? And so on. So I got myself in a bit of a, in a bit of a tizzy around this and I brought it to supervision and I was surprised to find that my supervisor was happy enough for me to continue in a kind of a counseling role provided I personally inside felt happy with it. What was interesting was that my supervisor said to me, if they as a school are happy for you to, or if they're happy to use the time they've been allocated or the time that they buy in, and again, that, that sort of comes into uh, trading psychological services, which we'll talk about again down the line. But if they're happy to use up the time that they've either been allocated or that they're buying in that manner, and you feel comfortable with it, well, you're using psychology to try and make a situation better and therefore there's no reason not to continue that way. So that seemed fine and yet something about it was still making me a little bit uncomfortable. So I mentioned it at at another supervision session with some of my colleagues at the service and I was asked a fantastic question by one of my more experienced colleagues. And she said to me, what outcomes are you working toward? And suddenly everything became clear that the reason that this situation was actually bothering me wasn't that I felt uncomfortable in that situation with that young person. 
because I felt fine. I felt like the school were right in a sense that um, they were more comfortable working with me and so on. And it wasn't that I was uncomfortable that the school were using their time that way because my supervisor was absolutely right. It's their prerogative. If that's the way they want to use their time, then that's absolutely fine. The issue was in so much of my work, I want to affect change. Like we've talked about throughout this episode, I want to have, I want to improve young people's lives or families' lives or schools, whatever. I want to make a situation better than it used to be. How am I going to do that if I don't measure some kind of change? And if I don't have outcomes, if I don't have specific outcomes that I'm working toward and then measuring how close I've got or how how much further along the journey I've got toward those outcomes, then how on earth can I possibly suggest that things are better? And that was precisely the issue. And you know what? I thought that this reflection here, where we've talked about the what, about the being kind of wrapped up and the sweet words and the am I doing the job properly and so on and so forth. I thought that there was going to be all sorts of insidious concerns around this, but actually what happened was it took one other colleague's sort of clear blue sky thinking to just make everything so obvious to me. And I guess I would. my point is that I'm really surprised because I never saw the solution to this issue being talking to colleagues and having them explain something really straightforward that I was well capable of working toward because I can easily set some outcomes and start working toward them. And I guess what I've learned is that there is no point being shy or sort of trying to protect yourself by not telling people about some of the concerns that you have around your work, which would maybe be my predisposition. Because I find that pretty much every EP I've worked with is generous of spirit and has a lot of experience and will help you get to where you need to go without without judgment, you know, without um, stigma being attached to it. And I think that was an important lesson for me to learn and something I'd really like to take forward with me in my professional practice for the rest of my career because... Um, God knows it's hard enough without just trying to do it all on your own. Um, I bet you, if you, you're probably listening to this and that's so obvious to you, but for someone like me who's a, a little bit proud, it's not all that obvious. And I think maybe in the future I'm going to talk a little bit about the psychology around why we do and don't ask for help because I, I read around that um, a few weeks ago and it's fascinating. So I think I'll leave you with that. Thanks so much for listening. This is maybe slightly longer than I anticipated, but you know what? Maybe it was valuable, and that's the most important thing. So take care of yourselves, and yeah, good luck. Bye.